Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Pete. I'm uh, the pastor of Ebenezer Chapel in Walton. And before that, I was one of the leaders here at Christchurch. And I'm really glad to be with you this morning uh, looking at Psalm 51 together. Before we start, maybe just take a moment to get your kids sorted, get yourself sorted. And please make sure you have a Bible with you so we can look at the text of Psalm 51 together, this beautiful psalm that David wrote for us. As we come to God's word, let's pray. Holy Spirit, it is your ministry among us to convict us of sin. And so I pray that you would do that for us this morning and so lead us to repentance and deeper faith in our Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In April, the Home Secretary Priti Patel was asked about the government's failure to provide enough PPE for NHS workers. And this is how she responded. I want you to see if you can spot the problem. She said, I'm sorry if people feel there have been failings, but people must understand we are in an unprecedented situation. Just in case you want to give her the benefit of the doubt, which by the way, if you're a Christian, you should, the, uh, maybe she didn't just quite express herself as clearly as she wanted to. The news reporter who asked the question gave her a second chance. So he said to her, uh, just to be clear, you are apologising for the lack of PPE that has resulted in the infections and deaths of NHS workers. And she replies, I've been very clear in what I've said, and I'm sorry if people feel that way. Now, I'm not trying to get at the Home Secretary in particular. Uh, sadly, you get the same thing from all politicians, no matter which party they belong to. But I'm sure you see the problem with her response. This is what has become known as the non-apology apology. It looks a bit like an apology. It even contains the words, I'm sorry. But it's not actually an apology. See, first of all, it shifts responsibility and blame onto other people. I'm sorry if people feel that way. In other words, the problem is not what I've done, but with how you feel. And secondly, it makes excuses. I'm sorry, but. In other words, this isn't really my fault. I can't be held responsible for what's happened. Like I say, I'm not getting at the Home Secretary particularly. She just happened to be the example I chose, and there are thousands of them. And the problem has not gone missed on social media. Uh, here are some of my favourite responses. Uh, if, you know, if it works for uh, the Home Secretary, maybe it works for the Treasury too. Uh, or, or this one, if you've seen the programme Chernobyl, this one will make sense to you. To you. Or, or this one is my personal favourite, if you are terrible at parking. We hear these kinds of non-apology apologies all the time, don't we? And it's especially frustrating from the mouths of politicians. You think to yourself, I wish they would just own up, admit their failings, stop making excuses, say sorry properly, and start doing something about it. But here's the thing, this uh, non-apology apology, it doesn't just affect politicians. It's a human problem. My guess is that you do it too. I, I know I do. 
when I think back over the past few weeks, especially at home with my family, there are times that in my pride, in not wanting, not wanting to admit that I'm at fault, I haven't even managed to muster a non-apology, let alone a proper one. And when I have, it's looked a lot more like Priti Patel's than David's. Maybe it's just me. My guess is it's probably you as well. We find it hard to repent, don't we? Our pride, our fragile self-righteousness makes it hard for us to humble ourselves, to admit before God and other people that we messed up and say sorry. And we're not the only ones. Uh, even the great King David in the Old Testament found it hard. If you're unfamiliar with the background to the psalm, it's given to us uh, at the top of the psalm. It's normally in italics, those words they give us, the context. And, uh, and they're just as much scripture as the rest of the psalm. And here it gives us the backstory to Psalm 51. And what we find out is that David has sinned badly. He had taken another man's wife whose husband was away with the army, which was where David was supposed to be. He got her pregnant. Then he arranged her husband's death and for about a year acted as though nothing was wrong. And then Nathan confronted him. And like the prodigal son in Jesus' story, Psalm 51 is David coming back to God in repentance. And he writes down the words of his repentance for our benefit to give us words, categories, that make us attentive to what repentance really looks like in the life of a Christian. And I hope you know that you do need to repent. And so do I, even if you've been a Christian for many years. In Mark's Gospel, which I know you've been looking at as a church this past year, the first word out of Jesus' mouth is repent. See, repentance and faith is the starting point of the Christian life. If you're not a Christian, you're, you're tuning in to this this morning and you're wondering, yeah, how do you get going as a Christian? That's how. Turning from sin to Jesus in repentance and faith. But it's not only the start. When the great reformer Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg church to spark the Reformation, his first thesis, number one on the list, was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Like I said, repentance is not just turning away from sin, but turning to Jesus Christ. And so the whole Christian life is to be marked by that ongoing repentance, because we just need to keep doing that. Repentance, therefore, is not just a one-time starting out experience, but the daily substance of walking with Jesus. Kneeling in repentance before him is to be our continual posture. In other words, repentance is not just the gateway, but the pathway. Not just the way in, but the way on. 
I've met some people in the course of my life who claimed to be Christians, but they seemed to think that Jesus had died for them in such a way that they'd been propelled beyond repentance so that they didn't need to confess their sins to God or other people anymore. If that's you, you aren't actually trusting Jesus as your saviour. You're using him as an excuse not to face your sin. And that is hypocrisy. And Jesus will not play along with that. You see, proud, face-saving people and churches that self-righteously refuse to repent are repulsive to God. God's blessing only flows to those who are willing to get on their knees in humble confession of sin. I love how Ray Ortland puts it, he says, the true gospel does not create superior people, but people who trust Jesus enough to face themselves honestly and own up. So if you want to be a useful, growing Christian, if you want to be a useful, growing church, first, we need to be repentant people, a repentant church. So how does Psalm 51 lead us towards those things? Well, three things that we're going to see this morning. And here's the first one. Repent and rest on God's character. Verses one and two. Repent and rest on God's character. One of the reasons I guess we live in a society where the non-apology apology is a regular reality is because we also live in a culture, and social media is a massive part of this, that is high on moral outrage but low on forgiveness. If a government official were to actually stand up and own up rather than do what they normally do and shift the blame and avoid taking responsibility, I suspect the reaction might end up actually being worse. There's only one headline worse than politician dodges responsibility again. And that is politician admits they are responsible. We live in a culture that loves to trawl back through people's Facebook uh, timelines and find something stupid they said in 2005. Cancel people at the click of a button. Hang them out to dry where there is no possibility of forgiveness. In that kind of culture you will rarely find genuine repentance. It is far too dangerous. See, these two, they, they come together. You will only find a culture of repentance flourishing where a culture of forgiveness is manifestly present. But often what we do is we take what's true of our society and we apply it to Jesus. So we think to ourselves, if he finds out what I've done now, if he finds out I've done it again, surely this is the end of the road now. No more second chances. But do you notice in Psalm 51 that is not what David does? Now don't forget what he's done. He has blown it big time. And sometimes people are tempted to compare themselves with David and they say, well, I'm not that bad. They, they see themselves as somehow above the need for repentance because they never committed adultery with a married woman, got her pregnant and arranged the death of her husband. But the point 
of understanding just how much David has blown it is not to put ourselves above repentance. The point is that if David can come to God like this when he's done that, you can come to God in the same way, whatever it is you've done, whatever big or small ways you have made a mess of things this week. See, the gospel does not remove the need for our repentance. It provides for it. And so David comes to God and he admits three things. His transgressions, his iniquity and his sin. It each describes a different dimension of sin, a law-breaking, waywardness from God, missing the mark. And David appeals to God for three things. To show him mercy, not to deal with him as he deserves. To blot out his transgressions like editing out a scene from a film to wash away all his iniquity, to hose down the filth, to cleanse him. But when you stop and think about it, that is an outrageous request, isn't it? Where does David find the audacity to ask God for that, given what he's done? His confidence is in the character of God. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. See, repentance rests on God's character. It depends on his unfailing love, on his great compassion, on his abundant mercy to sinners. That is his character, proven to us in the person of Jesus. And because God is that kind of God, you can repent. You can rest safely in his compassionate embrace to people who've made a mess and confess your sin. Again, the gospel does not remove the need for our repentance, it provides for it. But we go one step further even than David goes in Psalm 51, because we don't just rest on God's mercy and compassion, but also on his justice. The Apostle John puts it this way in 1 John chapter 1, he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that a remarkable statement? He will forgive you. It would be unjust of God to deny you forgiveness if you come to him because Jesus has paid for all your sins by dying on the cross. And God is not unjust. No one has ever come to God confessing their sins in humility and been refused. 
and no one ever will. You see again, the gospel does not remove the need for our repentance, but provides for it. You can confess your sins because Jesus died to pay for them. So whoever you are, whatever guilt you've lugged around from this past week, you can come to Jesus, not for your comeuppance. So Jesus has taken the punishment you deserve by dying on the cross, but for forgiveness. So repent and rest in the character of God. And secondly, repent and render no excuses, verses 3 to 9, render no excuses. In these verses, David describes his sin like a looming, accusing spectre, always in his rearview mirror, never giving him a moment's peace. And I guess we all know something of what that's like, don't we? Being haunted by the guilt, the stupidity of our selfish choices and foolish decisions. And we try to run away. But how can you run from yourself? We try to hide from God. We try to distract ourselves. We let time pass to dull the ache of guilt, thinking maybe God will forget if enough time passes and we just don't bring it up. And the truth is, it sort of half works, doesn't it? We do forget some things at least, even if God doesn't. And it's sort of like um, we've got these rucksacks on our backs and we stuff our guilt in it and we just get used to carrying it around. It's not that the guilt goes away. We just get used to having the weight on our shoulders and we get so used to it that we barely notice it's there anymore except for those odd occasions where something happens and we're reminded of the weight of guilt that hangs over us. David knows what it's like to do that and he's here to tell us that freedom from that, release, peace, forgiveness only comes through repentance. You see what David says in verses 7 and 8, the crushed and groaning bones are filled with joy and gladness. That's what repentance opens the door to in your life. But it must be real repentance, not the non-apology version, the real thing. And genuine repentance renders no excuses. That's the language David uses in verse 4, isn't it? He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When David says those words, he isn't denying his sin against Bathsheba or Uriah or anyone else. He's acknowledging that sin is ultimately and fundamentally against God himself. And what he did was evil in God's sight. Have you ever used a word like that when confessing your sin before God? Of course, we would rather say, I slipped up. I had a bad day. I was stressed. It was out of character. We're all human. It was an unprecedented situation. They're all just versions of the non-apology though, aren't they? I want to suggest 
that genuine repentance is when we stop sugarcoating our sins and we start using words like evil, facing up to what it really is, owning up to what we've done. That's what's going on in verse 5, by the way. Uh, David isn't blaming his mum for his sin. He's acknowledging that what he's done is in some way in keeping with the whole pattern of his life up until now. He has this bent, this, this nature that is inclined towards evil and sin. David says if you want to know freedom from the weight and guilt of your sin, repent and stop making excuses there's no need to make excuses anyway. You can trust God's character. He will excuse you. You don't need to do it for yourself. And the extent to which you're able to do this is a good litmus test of what you're actually trusting in. See, whatever you say you're trusting in, if your actual hope is to live a good enough life so that God will bless you, one of the symptoms of that is that every instance of sin and repentance is traumatic. It's unnatural to us, even threatening. Only under great duress does a self-righteous person admit they have sinned. Because their hope is in their moral goodness. But in the gospel, the knowledge of our acceptance in Christ makes it easier to admit that we are deeply flawed people. How? Because we know we will not be put to shame. We will not be cast off. We will not be sent away if we confess the true depths of our sinfulness. God knows. Our hope is in Christ's righteousness, not our own. And so if we're trusting in Jesus, it is not nearly as traumatic to admit our failings without excuse. Actually, if you're trusting Jesus, repentance will be something that becomes more and more natural to you. If you're growing as a Christian, you will actually repent more, not less. So repent and render no excuses and thirdly and finally repent because it results in restoration verses 7 to 19 repent it results in restoration I recently came across this Japanese art it's called kintsugi I think and basically what you do is you find a beautiful bowl or plate and you drop it on the floor and it smashes to pieces but then the artist carefully gathers back together the pieces and puts them back together using a ceramic gold paint. And the end result is a beautifully restored bowl, even more beautiful than what you had to start with. And repentance is a bit like that. See, according to verse 17, repentance always involves brokenness. David says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken 
and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. When David says those words, he isn't rejecting the sacrificial system, but showing us that even the best gifts are offensive to God if he does not first have your broken heart. What God wants from you first and foremost is not your sacrifices, not your offerings of money or anything else, not even your service, but your broken heart. You can't make up for a lack of brokenness in your heart over sin uh, and repentance in your life by just working really hard to try and serve Jesus. He wants your heart, not your performance. Only once he has your broken heart is he in any way inclined to accept your service. And it's not that we bring our brokenness in exchange for forgiveness as if we're trying to earn our forgiveness through feeling really sorry making ourselves so miserable and regretful that we truly deserve to be forgiven that is not it rather the broken and contrite heart laments the offensiveness of sin not just the consequences but the very action against God himself acknowledges I've got nothing to offer God except my sin. But if you come to God like that, in brokenness and contrition, in humility and lowliness, he will not despise you. It's painful Humiliating even to experience the breaking of our hearts because of sin. To come before God and others without excuse can be sore spending time on your knees. But just like Kintsugi, it results in restoration. In fact, something even more beautiful than how it began. Now, I should say at this point, restoration doesn't always mean everything will go back to how it was before. Repentance doesn't mean there won't be consequences. There were for David. And especially if you've sinned in a serious way that involved an abuse of power or position, restoration doesn't mean being just put straight back in that old position again. In fact, to repent properly is to accept the consequences of our sin without appeal. But there is the deep restoration of ourselves, our humanity, our assurance of Jesus' deep love for us. That's what's going on in verse 10, when David prays for more than just cleansing, but for a new heart, a renewed, restored spirit of joyful and willing obedience. And this morning, if you're a Christian, if you're trusting Jesus, that is yours. In Christ, by the Spirit, you have been given a pure heart. The joyful, willing, Holy Spirit of Jesus lives inside you. And you are assured that no matter what you do, you will not be cast off. And only now... Are we ready to be used by the Lord? 
Verse 13, David says, then, then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. See, only repentant people can be used by God. So if you want to be useful to Jesus, if you want to be a church that is used by the Lord to turn sinners back to him, to, to bring people to him, we must embrace repentance as a way of life. There is no other way. But God promises that it is in that way that he will build his church. And even with David, his sin causes a great deal of collateral damage. But God is gracious in bringing restoration. Solomon, who is David's second son by Bathsheba, becomes king. And in his lifetime, he builds a wall around Jerusalem, just like David asks for in verses 18 and 19. Because God is the kind of God who brings beauty out of brokenness, restoration out of repentance. So let's embrace repentance as a way of life and let's make sure we do it properly. Rest on the character of God, render no excuses. Because for all our sin, which is many, his grace abounds all the more and it results in restoration.